All right, let's do it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman. I'm a human performance and education specialist at Kaiser. I'll be moderating today's panel alongside my Kaiser teammate, Mike Compton, who is filling in for Nick Higgins. Today's discussion will focus on long-term athletic development and the considerations that go into building athleticism over time. This is our first ever panel for the KES, and I couldn't be more excited to introduce our panelists and get started. Before we do, a reminder that we will allot some time at the end for any additional questions. Please type any questions you may have in the chat and we'll do our best to direct them to our panelists. Our first panelist is Dr. Mike Young, who is the owner of the Athletic Lab Sports Performance Training Center, director of the LTAD Network, and performance director of the North Carolina Courage. He has experience working with and consulting for Olympians, professional and collegiate athletes in the US, and internationally with World Cup Rugby, Premier League Soccer, and weightlifting. Our second panelist is Mike Whiteman. Mike is the director of sports science for the Pittsburgh Riverhounds Soccer Club and Riverhounds Academy. For the last 15 years, he has been with the organization aiding the development of youth, collegiate, and professional soccer athletes. Our third panelist is Missy Mitchell Macbeth. After spending seven years at TCU, Missy is now in her sixth year as head strength conditioning coach at Byron Nelson High School in Texas. She's also the Southwest Regional Board Member for the National High School Strength Conditioning Association and is the owner of Safe Iron LLC. Our fourth and final panelist is Dr. Rick Howard. Dr. Howard is Assistant Professor of Applied Sports Science at Westchester University of Pennsylvania and is the current director of strength conditioning there as well. He is the founder of the NSCA LTAD Special Interest Group, co-author of the NSCA position paper on LTAD, and has experience teaching K-8 health and PE, along with coaching high school sports and strength conditioning. So here we go, KES 2022 is underway. Our first question is for Dr. Howard. How would you define long-term athletic development and why is it important? Gabe, thanks for the question. Thanks for everybody who's joining us today. And thanks to the panelists. This is a great group of speakers to be talking on this topic. So I'm excited to be part of the team today. So LTAD, long-term athletic development, I think the, the difficulty really is in the terminology itself because people get misconceptions about what any of those particular phrases mean. So we usually break it down into long-term, like what do we mean by long-term? And you know, in our society where everybody wants something in 10 seconds or less, uh, it's difficult to really describe that, but long-term, we look at it, LTAD is a cradle-to-grave concept as a framework in order to promote physical literacy, and that sounds way outside the realm of what we're talking about for sports performance, right? But what we're really talking about is that if you're not taking care of the holistic well-being of every athlete under your care, you're not doing the best for their athletic performance either. You're limiting their ability. So uh, we want long-term to be as long as possible. Uh, the athlete part is also up for debate. You know, many times in our society, we look at an athlete as somebody who is an elite performer in a particular sport. That's how we define it. But according to Margaret Whitehead, who coined the modern version of physical literacy and some others, uh, Tom Ferry at the Aspen Institute, you know, an athlete is anybody. It's just we're an athlete at a different level. And there's a lot of debate around that. Several people say, you know, if you're not playing a sport, you're not an athlete. But look at the training that is now popularized for even the general public. We've taken a lot of our athletic concepts and brought it to those. A friend of mine uh, was actually talking to one of my classes today about training the older adult, Robert Linkle, and he was talking about how important it is to generate power and to do mobility and stability and strength, like all the things that we didn't ever use to do for that population. So if we look at everybody as an athlete, then we can really scale it to their current ability and see where we want to get to next. So then the last part, of course, is development. Um, a lot of times in our society, we think development means that you won your last game. But development is that overall process. What are we looking at? What do we really want to get 
in the short term and in the long term. So we know what our long-term goals are in terms of creating a physically literate culture, a culture in which everybody can choose which activities they want to participate based on their current likes, their current abilities, who they're hanging around with, but then back map it. So we could even look at if we're working with third graders, like how can we make it fun? You know, Missy was talking before we got started here about a fun competition she was having today. And I'm like, that's so funny because we do the same thing with college athletes and they love it because how often do they really get to do any of those fun things, right? They don't do it so much. So we do all kinds of fun challenges, either in the beginning of the workout, sometimes in the middle of the workout to keep the developmental process exciting because at a lot of our levels, one of the biggest difficulties we have is compliance, right? They don't want to do it anymore because it's the same old, same old. So yeah, we're doing that again, right? And I was in the same boat developmentally. Like uh, we'd go to the gym and started squat day. And we're like, all right, great. What kind of squat are we going to do today? It wasn't until I changed my whole training regimen around strongman that it really changed it for me. So it can change. So development is still also across that same continuum. And I think those concepts collectively are what drive all of us to do what we do to help our athletes, no matter what level we are at any given time, to be able to uh, put that together. Yeah, absolutely. And I like what you said about, you know, making it broader than just athletes. Obviously, this is something that, you know, long-term athletic development is a way to um, prepare people, not just for athletics, but for their lives. Um, a little bit on the importance on it. Mike Whiteman, do you have any comments on just the importance of long-term athletic development and, and uh, its impact, let's say, for athletes? Yeah, I think Rick did a fantastic job of explaining it. I summarize it in one word, sustainability, and I'm always quick to point out to our young academy athletes that you're only going to be a quote unquote athlete for likely a small percentage of your life. And we want to be able to maintain these sorts of attributes, these holistic attributes throughout the entirety of your life. So for me, it's I've got a unique perspective because I get to work with grassroots athletes that are three to four years of age, all the way up through our professional team at, at the Riverhounds. So I, I get to see that progression from more general type develop to a, a slightly higher degree of specificity. But it, it, it's really, for me, just summarized in, in one word, and, and that is sustainability and, and really being subtle with our interventions, regardless of what they are, power, speed, strength, uh, in conditioning too. That's a, that's a big one, particularly as it relates to soccer specifically. Uh, I think sometimes everyone likes to go over the top with that one specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Sustainability is a great way to look at that. Um, I know you mentioned some of those um, kind of abilities. Uh, you look at conditioning, you look at strength, power development. Uh, Dr. Young, I have a question for you. When we discuss periodization of athletes of higher biological and training ages, uh, typically we look at it through that lens of training adaptations. We look at hypertrophy, basic strength, max strength, developing power, conditioning. Um, does this type of periodization apply to younger athletes in populations as well, say grade school or early high school years, or do we need to view the periodization of these individuals more as a periodization of movement literacy? Well, I take a uh, very similar view to the previous panelists, I think this is a needs to be a cradle to grave approach. And uh, the framework or the lens, as you put it, that 
uh, where we're looking at training adaptations. Really, I would almost reserve that towards the last maybe one, two parts of that continuum. That's, that's where the focal point is. Uh, I tend to break things up into three, maybe four different phases, so to speak. And each phase will have different objectives. Uh, and I think it's inappropriate to say train a youth athlete like a pro, but there's a lot of middle ground in between those two where we have to get from point A to point B. And there's maybe, uh, as I said, three, four different phases in there. So I don't think it's appropriate to kind of look through it in the lens of just simple training adaptations, linear hypertrophy, basic strength, max power, et cetera. Uh, early on, I do think the objective is probably, uh, if we're talking about early, early stage, we're looking at learning to train, uh, ensuring appropriate fundamental movement skills, filling any gaps that they might have. Basically, I think about this as like developing the broadest movement library possible. They need to have a mastery of our basic movements in the gym and elsewhere, squatting, lunging, pushing, pulling, hinging, bracing, rotating, being able to jump, land, et cetera. Uh, as they get older, then I think about maybe we're training to train. So this is kind of like early puberty, 13 to 15, 12 to 14, maybe for girls. Now we're, we're establishing competency in the more basic gym exercises like barbell type work, maybe incorporating some Olympic weightlifting derivatives, kind of uh, focusing a little bit more on the uh, tasks that are more associated with training, like sprinting, linear sprinting, change, hard changing directions, the stuff that might appear in the sport of choice. Uh, maybe uh, starting to address some uh, lower level plyometrics, intermediate plyometrics, et cetera. Then we advance once they're around uh, later adolescence, 16, 18 or so, 15, 17 for women. Uh, that's where we start to get into the stuff where you're talking about kind of the classic periodization training adaptation focused models. Now we can start to focus on the stuff that uh, shows up on Instagram and YouTube as the sexy stuff, you know, your development of max strength, hypertrophy, that kind of thing in a way that's appropriate for the level of sport uh, or fitness that is needed there that for that particular athlete group. Um, we could start to incorporate more advanced plyometrics, Olympic lifting movements, change of direction, incorporating different tasks, uh, game specific scenarios. And now once we age out of that, we've kind of assuming they have kind of climbed that ladder, so to speak, we can now get into the really hardcore training where we're transitioning to senior level sport, elite level sport. This is like what I would consider uh, post high school, we can really start to hone in on the uh, elite level type of training, assuming they have that that basis of movement competency and um, you know motor motor skill development. Uh, we're developing the physical, technical, tactical, et cetera, that is necessary for high level performance in sport. And then, if at any point in time they age out or uh, Per, you know, their performance doesn't match their ability to continue in the sport that we have brought them along to where they now have an opportunity to be a lifelong athlete um, and have the skills, the life skills, the movement skills necessary to live a, a long, healthy life and maintain the physical qualities that they need to. Yeah, I like all the things that you hit on there and especially starting with the foundational piece, which is 
uh, the term you use is building a broad movement library, right? That is kind of the foundation of it. And none of those things that you talked about really happen without that movement library from the start. So um, excellent. Uh, Missy, my next question is for you. Uh, let's kind of dive into building that broad movement library. So um, at the ground floor with the athletes. So you have a young individual with very limited experience, uh, no previous training experience, and it's day one, they walk through your doors at Byron Nelson High School. What's your process for assessing the needs of this individual? And what type of testing are you doing? What are you looking for exactly? Um, I think the first relevant piece there is that in six years, I have never had one individual walk in my weight room. Instead, what I have is a herd of baby, I'm sorry, it's a tower. It is a tower of baby giraffes roller skating into the room. And there's like anywhere between 30 and 60 of them. Um, so priority one is control the chaos, um, and get some structure in the workout. Um, as far as actual assessment pieces, I'm going to focus on big five movements. So we're going to focus on, you know, the base level progression of our squat hip hinge single leg. So I'm going to assess an isometric split squat. Um, depending on the size of the athletes, we might either assess a reverse pull-up, which is my term for an inverted row or a traditional pull-up ISO hold at the top. If they have the strength level to even get up there, can they hold it? Um, and then last thing is going to be the start of our push-up progression, which is a high plank, which allows me to assess, um, whether or not they're able to brace and stack that rib cage on their pelvis correctly. Um, beyond that, I'm also, as I kind of alluded to up front, I'm also like looking at kind of the soft science aspect. How many kids do I have? What is the maturity level? Um, how many coaches do I have to help me through the session? What is the discipline level and the culture in that program? Um, and then just the energy level of the group. Um, a mistake that I made early on, I'd go from 80 freshman football players. And so I'm like at a level 10. And then I roll into a freshman girls basketball group where there's like seven kids and like, I need to take it down to like a three, or I'm going to terrify those kids because they've never been in the weight room. So um, there's a science piece to it of how we're going to start progression wise with actual movement skills, but there's also an art to it of taking the appropriate approach to make sure that you create buy-in with those kids so that they are um, bought into your system and are motivated to go through some of those progressions. Because as was you know mentioned previously, what we're starting with at a young age isn't necessarily the sexy stuff that they see and they're inundated with things on social media. Um, so we've got to sell our programming to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the baby drafts on skates see it at the collegiate level as well. Uh, Dr. Mike Young, if you can comment on that, maybe talk about an athlete who has a little bit more training experience that's coming to you the first time, you know, okay, they played high school athletics, they had a you know collegiate background in athletics, and now they're coming to you for the first time hands-on. What does your assessment kind of look like knowing that they're maybe a little bit further down the road with a little bit of a higher training age? Uh, well, my situation is probably not too different from a lot of others. I do tend personally now tend to work um, mostly at the, the elite end uh, in terms of who I deal with in a variety of different sports. But what's interesting is I see you know, I see the, the giraffes on roller skates sometimes too, uh, more so in certain sports than others, but I'm always amazed when you see high level performers who have maybe skipped steps or they're maybe in a sport because they have been blessed with a, some kind of magnificent physical competency, you know, or a physical quality like strength or, um, 
you know, power or jumping ability, or maybe it's height in basketball. And really they're just motor morons. They can't, they can't do a full squat, you know, body weight. They can't hinge. They can't brace anything like that. Uh, so what's interesting, and I'm increasingly seeing this, is that um, the lack of physical education um, in, in, you know, our country and really in the world is kind of like trickling down or trickling up as the case would be to, you know, elite level sport. And just because you're an elite level performer doesn't necessarily mean that you've mastered these things that would make you safe and, a, a, you know, a high functioning human. Uh, so sometimes we're regressing all the way back to the things that they should have seen at high school level or so. And we're really just filling gaps a lot of times. So um, I have the luxury right now of having my most senior and experienced group. I've got a track and field group who's been with me for four or five years. We can really uh, do some crazy stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit hesitant to put on social media because I know the 12 and 13 year old kids are going to try that. Um, you know, I always try to put disclaimers on that kind of thing, but I'll always be fair and focus on the basics as well. You know, we, we never get away from the basics, even with my most advanced athletes, my Carolina courage girls were, you know, we're in the weight room just once a week. We're basically doing like almost LTAD type stuff. The games in the warm up, the sprint mechanic stuff, the weight room stuff looks like what you might do with, um, you know, in an LTAD setup for someone who wasn't as high of a performer, perhaps because, you know, they're high level in their athlete, but they're not necessarily high level in their physical qualities or movement competencies. So there's always a little bit of, uh, you know, coaching, the art of coaching, when you even when you get to the high level, you just can't assume that everybody's elite at everything that they do, because it's just simply not the case. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, so let's transition a little bit. Uh, you know, Missy told us maybe about, okay, when somebody walks in or when a herd of individuals uh, come in, but let's talk about navigating from maybe a sing singular individual to a larger group or team setting. Um, Mike Whiteman, you share a ton of videos on your social media of your training at the academy. How do you provide a quality group training session while also addressing the needs of certain individuals within the group? So over time, I came to realize that it became more important for me to use those large group settings as an opportunity to teach as opposed to coach. I would liken coach, coaching more to establishing good movement through repetitions, sets, things that we would normally think of in strength and conditioning. In the large group setting, I need to be willing to slow it down and deliver information so that they can practically use it when I'm not around. And I have found that in doing so, the quality and even the luck, regardless of the size, it is fantastic. And it's really rewarding too, because I think sometimes, particularly in the beginning when I was about 15 years ago starting, it felt like just trying to uh, as, as Missy was kind of alluding to, like, or trying to just maintain some sort of order and, and chaos. And then over, over time, I kind of, by just really slowing it down and, and also being very willing to not just highlight, obviously, good examples, but tastefully using those that are struggling, because you'll typically see very similar type movement patterns and 
successes and, and struggles amongst amongst the group uh, to really use them as teaching examples. This is good. This is bad. This is how this is likely what's happening. Let's fix it. Let's take our time. And, and really, I think the, the, the best way for me to describe the control over the larger groups is teaching as opposed to coaching. When I get them in the smaller or individual private setting, then I coach. And then uh, as, as Mike was kind of mentioning too, there's, a, there's also a big distinction between learning to train, training to train, and then eventually training to compete and win. So it, it depends on, on the stage. And most of them in the very young age are just learning to train. So in, in, in that context, by all means, don't, don't fear slowing it down and really getting what you want from the group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, good examples, bad examples, uh, using that as opportunities to teach other athletes. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Missy, a little bit on that. For some of the practitioners in our audience that are listening in, um, I would say, why is it important to emphasize movement quality? And if you could take us through a progression of how you would teach a squat pattern and then progress from the squat and so on. Um, the importance of teaching movement proficiency is obviously a safety uh, standpoint, whether we're talking about um, cradle to grave with the average person or whether we're talking about an athlete. Um, if they're injured as a result of our training, we've not done our job. Um, as far as a squat progression, we're going to start so number one, I teach my athletes three to four basic cues. And if we're in a group of three, I've got one person doing a squat. I've got one person doing something effectively idiot proof, like a band pull apart that doesn't require a ton of coaching, a lot of focus out of me or their partner. Third person is going to coach and they're going to be responsible for those coaching cues. Um, so with the squat, we're looking at feet flat, torso vertical, and then closing the knee. So we're looking for a full range of motion. Um, I have purchased squat wedges and I'm just starting everybody on that to get into those hips, remove the ankle. And then we're trying to progress uh, through that over time. As far as the actual progression, point A to point B, um, we're going to start with a counter movement squat. So they've got an object at their chest. They're going to press it out and counterbalance the hips. I, we're then cueing them externally to say, push that plate or soccer ball or whatever it is you're having them hold as far away from the hips as you can get them. Um, external cueing is far superior for athletes. They don't understand where their bodies are in space, but if you can relate it to something outside, they do a lot better with it. Um, second piece to the progression is going to be a goblet squat. Um, so now we're moving the load inside and we're increasing the load from there. We're going to do a hands-free front squat or a zombie squat, just working on the position of the humerus. Right. And then we'll go into a rack position, front squat. I do not use back squats with my athletes for a number of reasons. Um, my most recently cited one is that you're relying on one idiot to spot another one. Um, so from a safety perspective, when we do have our tower of giraffes rolling through the weight room, um, really, really important that we're doing things as safely as possible. Um, so again, squat progression, counter movement squat, goblet squat, hands free, and then into a rack position front squat. Great. Thank you. Um, it's important to have that, that checklist for a lot of those exercises you progress, especially with those younger athletes talking about building that movement library. Um, and then for a lot of people listening here, they believe Nick Winkleman has a ton of great stuff on external cues, um, does a really good job with that. So that's a name to look at. If you want to hear a little bit more about what Missy was saying, external cues, 
um, versus internal cues for teaching. Nick Winkleman would be a great resource for that. Um, Dr. Young, uh, you've had, you know, you kind of started to get into it a little bit uh, with the different ranges of athletes that you've had ranging, you know, from youth and now all the way up to experience with Olympic athletes. Uh, what design and implementation of training sessions are consistent between those two and maybe hit on a couple of the major differences? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And uh, so while I personally work almost exclusively with uh, the higher end athlete right now in a variety of sports at my business, uh, we work with, you know, youth and developmental athletes all the time. In fact, we have the largest uh, youth soccer club uh, in the world. I believe there's 14,000 kids of which we work with all the ECML uh, premier and academy kids who have a, a high level junior hurricanes, uh, some swim clubs. So we have quite a few. And while I'm not personally working with them, I am uh, overseeing their programming and uh, how that progression works. And I think we have an overarching philosophy where that holds true across all of them, how we manage a session, uh, our exercise selection to some extent, the progressions, the cueing, et cetera. Are, are going to be quite similar, whether you are a you know, 20 year old, 30 year old, who's just learning these activities for the first time, or you're a seven or eight year old learning these activities for the same time. So chronological age means almost nothing from that perspective. But what we do is um, we do have this overarching framework and uh, the, the philosophy holds true no matter what. And then people are hopping on that train, so to speak, at different points. You know, ideally, someone is getting on the train when they're six, seven years old and starting to uh, learn the basic motor patterns and movement competencies and developing that huge movement library that I discussed earlier. Uh, if someone, you know, we start working with someone in their 15, 16, we're not going to just skip that. We're still going to go through that. Um, what holds true is that we follow basic, uh, you know, we follow the basic understandings of training theory. Uh, however, as I mentioned in my, when I answered the first question, the goals of early uh, foundation phase LTAD training is not necessarily physical adaptations. I think it's more so movement competencies. So while we are going to look for overload, uh, that's going to take a back seat in terms of the, the focus of the training to just making sure that we have, you know, expanded our, our movement library, we're moving with competency, we can, you know, sprint, jump, land, throw, et cetera. Uh, as we have mastered those skills, now we start to place a premium on, you know, the basic training adaptations, like the, the physiological adaptations. So it's just a gradual shift. You, over time, you'll, you would never really say, oh, I don't know where this, you know, it's not like we turn off a switch at some point and say, okay, now we're focusing on max, max strength or max power. It gets trickle fed in early on for someone who's seven or eight years old and they start coming to train with us. If it is even training, so to speak, it's, you know, we want it to be more like play. We're just going to introduce these activities, which maybe have some element of, uh, you know, strength, within them, but that's not our focal point. You know, they'll develop strength, but it's more like body, body awareness, movement competency. Uh, so the focus on technique, the focus on fundamentals stays true all the way through, but then we can somewhat take the foot off the gas on uh, movement, basic movement skill development, at least uh, as they progress. 
and put the foot on the gas for more sports specific movement skill development, cutting, changing direction, jumping, uh, throwing all in a sports specific manner. Uh, we can take our, you know, foot off the foot off the gas in terms of like just basic movement library development and put it on to physiological development as they progress and it becomes more safer and they have the foundation. So the, the framework is, you know, kind of a continuum. Uh, and there's never a point where you say, okay, we're switching gears, so to speak. It's just this gradual change over time. Um, early on, there's certainly things you, you want to avoid. Uh, but I think from my perspective, it's, that's the easier thing to do if you're a, if you're a kind of honest, uh, well-informed practitioner. Stay away from the stuff that really these, these younger kids don't have any business doing. It's, it's really not in their long-term best interest, even really short-term best interest to kind of jump years ahead into stuff that they simply don't have to have the uh, competency to handle. You know, we don't take kids in, in uh, you know, seventh, eighth, seventh grade and put them into, uh, you know, astrophysics or quantum physics or something. They've got to go through like, you know, the basic sciences first. They've got to learn to read and write. And that's really how we should look at movement and physical development is like, hey, let's treat this no differently than, uh, you know, cognitive development. There's steps to this. If we want to get them to quantum physics, you know, elite development, uh, you know, and mechanics and et cetera, we've got to take them through, let's do arithmetic first. And, uh, but how you teach is really like kind of similar, you know, the focus will be more on fun, more movement competency early, and then gradually shift to be more serious, more focused, more sports specific. Yeah, I think that's a great parallel that a lot of our listeners can think about is um, the parallel to teaching uh, and teaching classes and courses. And, you know, you're not going to understand a lot of the astrophysics if you don't have the basic fundamental maths down. So um, a great way for some people that are in listening to understand. Um, Mike Whiteman, uh, you kind of have the opportunity as well to work with you know, your athletes at the academy who are your younger athletes, then all the way up to the Pittsburgh Riverhound Soccer Club. How about some of the uh, similarities and then maybe some of the differences between the design implementation as well there? Yeah, so Mike said it well, at the youngest ages, it's, it's truly just movement competency, position and self-awareness. And then as they progress, I, I have found the greatest success in actually being very supplemental and shying away from being sport specific, even for our professional athletes, just because it might be counterintuitive, but my best athletes and my best prepared athletes are my younger athletes. When we, and, and I'm sure Mike can attest to this as well, working with the professional soccer players, when you get free agents coming in and they're in and out and there's such a wide variety of, of backgrounds and in working with academy athletes, I'm afforded and blessed and I have the opportunity to work with some of these kids for up to 10 years. So I know the progression and their development. There isn't that necessarily at the pro side so you can make a strong case even with the professionals to keep them healthy that to fill in the gaps they need a high level still even more so of the the general physical preparedness so to be clear there's really not much difference at all and in fact i would say my 
oldest academy athletes are more advanced in terms of what I would have them do than our professionals. For the pros with limited time as well too and trying to be as succinct as possible and get to the point, it is GPP and then impose in a controlled manner the highest level of stress, whether it's a maximum sprint, like, like today I was having our pro team do that or some sort of simple low dosage depth jump and, and, and then get them out the door and ready and onto the field lateral bounds too for the, for the pro team, uh, bounding as, as, as primary type supports, like, like more aggressive type plyos, but in, in small dosages, but, uh, the kids it's, it's really, really just simple basics of, of movement. Yeah. Dr. Young. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of tack onto that because this is a, a really nice, uh, kind of story. I've taken some club visits and consults at some of the uh, biggest soccer clubs in the world, your Real Madrid's and Arsenal's and uh, Liverpool's. And what's interesting is uh, you go to the academies and you, some of these programs, and it's just amazing really what some of these kids are doing. They're phenomenal job. Arsenal Academy is kind of like a shining light in this, in this uh, field. And um, kids are really doing phenomenal things. And they've obviously got these kids for many, many years, sometimes starting them from, you know, nine, 10 years old and taking them up through 18 years old. And um, then what you see on the first team where they're 18 plus, many of these kids that didn't come through the academy program, but who uh, were bought as internationals or free agents, and they're brought in as very high level pros. They're not training anywhere near as high level as these academy kids that have been in the system for, you know, uh, 10, 10 years or so. So it really is a thing where this is a, you have to develop this over time. And most of the kids, you, you get kids, I say, as a you know, 20 year old or whatever, you'll get in even at that high level, just need to basically be doing the basic, basic stuff. Uh, you know, we focus on the icing a lot. And in many cases, you don't even have the cake because uh, these, they don't, they can't do anything really well. So like with my courage programming, where uh, I look at them as high level elite in one regard, their soccer, you know, some of the best soccer players in the world, but in another regard, in the gym, they're intermediate, you know, so they're still doing basic, basic stuff. We don't do anything that's crazy or would, you know, kind of light Instagram and YouTube on fire. We're just doing like, you know, basic sets and reps. Uh, maybe the craziest I might get would be like incorporating complexes with uh, a squat and a jump or something like that. It's so fundamental. It's almost like the, a cheat code of cheat code for success is just to not do anything crazy. You just focus on the basics and do it amazingly well with these high level performers. Um, because in most team sports, they're not, they're elite in their sport, but they're not elite in the things that we are concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate both your input on that. Um, some good nuggets in there. Uh, when we talk about long-term athletic development, you just hit on it. It's long-term. Uh, as we know, as coaches and as former coaches, it requires a lot of time. It requires diligence uh, to yield results. Dr. Howard, can you discuss uh, how practitioners can create buy-in from athletes and parents in a world where many just want instant gratification? Sure. That's a great question and a great topic. So and it reminds me of looking at uh, Brad's comment here in the, in the chat, too, that 
Um, we, we need to look at everybody and, and bring out their best. Start with the success and how do we actually do that for our athletes at all levels and even with the parents. You know, it used to always be, we used the uh, term dealing with parents. We're not dealing with parents. If anybody's been a parent, you know you're there to protect the interests of your child. You want what's best for him or her. You're not there just to aggravate the coach. You know, you really want what's best. So I think sometimes we look at these things in the wrong way because we're all on the same page. We want the best for kids at all levels and of all ages. So when we're really talking about how are we impressing upon parents what needs to happen, there was a really good um, share. I think Eric Cressy had it about a month or so ago when uh, had an athlete, uh, the parents came up and said, you know, I want you to train my kid like the pros. And his response was, well, guess what the pros did when they were your son or daughter's age? They played like kids. So, you know, when you're talking about what to do, if we don't want to move through that developmental process too quickly, but we still want to make sure that it's fun. We want to reach out to parents, sport coaches, the community and everybody that we can and, and make it an educational process for us as a society to really embrace being active and to really embrace the benefits of sports participation. It's not about the trophy. It's not about the championship. You know, we see all these fights on the field between parents over a game between U10 players or, you know, they can't find an official because the parents were so rude. And then they finally get some 12 year old kid to do it. And then they're berating him. And then another fight breaks out. So uh, we really have to figure out how do we change the dynamics of youth sports in general? How do we change the dynamics within how we think of physical education? How do we change the dynamics with how we think of being active on a regular basis? You know, our society doesn't even value physical activity. And so a lot of times sports become, and, and for some of the teams I've had with a lot of youngsters, it's a great way for parents to drop their kids off because uh, they have four kids. What am I going to do with them? I got between three to six. I have to get all this stuff done. It's not to say, you know what, I really want my daughter to be a, a soccer player and I'm, I'm signing up like I got to find something to do. And, you know, the other kids are across the hall doing this. I could sign them up over here. So I think when we look at LTAD, it provides us that framework that we can use for populations of all ages to say, this is a way that we can look at it to help us move to that next level, whatever that level it is. So, you know, whether that level is to advance through sports or whether that level is to just have a nice toolbox full of movement capacity, full of things that you can do. You know, society has this terrible thing where we impose on people what their lifetime fitness activity should be. Most all of them don't require any skill. You know, they're walking, running, biking, like you didn't need anybody to teach you that. You know, you learn that when you're eight. So we really need to go back and look at all of this stuff and say, how do we really give kids this nice complement of tools that they can use, whether they're playing soccer, whether they're playing volleyball, whether they're taking time off and they're playing with their friends, or they're just creating games on their own. How do we make LTAD be that framework that allows kids in every sport setting to also show how they're having fun? Because that's when the parents are going to start to say, you know what? My kid actually wants to come. My kid loves this. My kid's signing up again next year. In fact, everybody in our neighborhood is going to do it. We don't need to go 600 miles away to play the team that's across town in a tournament when we have so much talent right here that we can start to develop. And, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are out there now trying to reframe how we're putting this together because 
the parent ideal of thinking that all kids have to be on the elite eight-year-old team. It's a, it's a word you shouldn't even use when kids are eight, right? So how do we get them to recognize and understand that elite means that, you know, you're doing good. You're out there, you're trying, you're playing, you're getting stronger, you're having fun, you're doing what you can do, you're active, and it's going to be a habit that we can help you develop that you want to use for the rest of your life. The other thing that I keep thinking about, um, I finally saw this. When I take my dog for a walk, I go, go to this park, and there's always these soccer practices, and it's been the best thing for stadium chairs ever because every parent goes there and they sit on their butt in a chair while they watch their kids running up and down the field with the coach. This one coach a couple of weeks ago did what I've always been talking about. He got the parents out to help and said, all right, parents, now go home, help with these skills throughout the week, and then we'll come back and we'll practice them again next weekend. The parents were having a great time. They actually got to get up and they got to like, why are we parents sitting around? There are just so many different ways that when we look at the LTAD framework, LTAD framework, we could look at it and say, these are opportunities for engagement. This is how we can build on the success of every child at every level to make them be the best that they can be, to move forward, to be a very competent mover and a happy mover, someone who wants to move. We haven't had that in our society. You know, that's no question that 70% of the kids are dropping out. It used to be at age 13, right? Uh, the data is now suggesting 11. There was a study that came out of the UK and Australia that it was eight. I'm like, holy cow, eight. You know, a lot of kids haven't even started playing yet. And they're showing that that's now the key dropout age was eight. So I'm like, we're, we're getting worse. Like we know all this stuff about long-term athletic development, but for some reason, parents just keep buying this notion. And, you know, way back when, when Tom Ferry wrote his first book game on, he figured out that the amount of money that parents spent on youth sports per year could, by the time that kid went to college, they could have put three kids through college if they banked it. To just to be able to tell all their friends in their neighborhood, hey, my kid's getting a college scholarship. They spent all of this extra money just because they got sold this ideal by groups of people who, you know, they, they have the best interests somewhat in heart of, you know, keeping kids active and say, you know, but, you know, I want you to keep playing basketball or soccer all year round and you have to stay in our academy or in our group or, you know, you're going to miss out on all of these opportunities. Uh, when I was with the school district of Philadelphia, we had a wonderful opportunity to share with parents uh, Ed Snyder from the Flyers before he passed wanted as his legacy that every kid would have all of the obstacles to hockey taken away. So he gave ice time. They partnered with the Department of Rec to be able to put together hockey leagues. We went to the local lacrosse association who were looking for coaches, looking for athletes. We showed them how that they could get the kids to play both sports, the coaches to learn how to coach both sports. We had the officials for both sports. We doubled the participation in both organizations just like that by getting them to work together. And then the parents were like, wow, this is so cool. Now there's so many different things that the kids could do, skills that they learned. And, you know, in Philly, there was always this thing that Philly kids didn't get a lot of the scholarships. So when we looked at it in that particular uh, vein, uh, women's ice hockey, there were more scholarships than there were women's ice hockey players to use them, especially in the inner city. So we're able to help kids get to college just because of the nature of some of the different sports. So when you make parents your partner, you're not dealing with them, they're your partner. When you make other coaches your partner and you're reaching out to them, how can I help? You know, at Westchester, they're kind of calling me a liaison when I had strength coach. I reach out to every department I could talk to. 
What can we help with nutrition? How can we get kids to do this? We keep reaching out to the wellness groups, reaching out to the parents. So well, here's what it looks like. And everybody's been on board just because we're framing it correctly. And I think that's a huge part of what we need to remember. Yeah, that's great. And that's awesome. And you talked a little bit about the dynamic between parents and athletes and parents and coaches, athletes. Um, I have a question for Missy. Uh, being at the high school level for about six years now, or now in year six, can you give some insight on athlete buy-in as well as administration, right? How do you get administration to buy in this idea of long-term athletic development, the resources you might need to help supplement that, et cetera? Um, this is a battle that I really have not had to fight at my current workplace because um, our district has, we have three high schools. Each of us have a full-time strength coach. And so our district is committed and bought into strength and conditioning. Um, I've never had a coach try to not utilize our services um, because it's just, that's one of the pieces of their job interview is that they come in, you have a strength coach, they're going to do the workouts for you. You're going to lift a minimum of twice a week. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, however, I have a lot of colleagues who are kind of fighting the good fight to try to become a strength coach at their school. Um, and I can tell you some ways to not do that. Um, and the way to not do that is to approach it with your agenda. Um, as Dr. Howard mentioned, you know, it has to be approached from a, how can I help you? How does this solve a problem that the administration has? Um, so things like you have to speak in their language, things like liability, risk management, um, reduction of injuries. And then at the end of the day, the biggest piece to buy in is going to be whether it's athletes, coaches, administration, parents, the biggest piece is going to be demonstrating results. So whether that's you know, wins and losses, we would love it to correlate with that. It doesn't always, whether that's participation rates, whether that's, you know, black and white KPI improvements, um, you're going to have to demonstrate some, you know, progress with the programs that you're working with. And I would say that's the other piece is generally speaking, these individuals that I'm referring to are in charge of their sport um, and they're doing the strength and conditioning for their sport, but they want to expand across the board. Um, so I think you have to be really faithful with the sport that you're given and then maybe start to bridge those relationships with other sports and say, hey, like instead of going in and attacking their programming, like I see people, you know, we see these tweets and stuff with these workouts on the board and people are just shredding them. Um, and I think that comes from a good place of wanting to help, um, but you can't do that and build a relationship with a coach. You might go in and be like, hey, have you thought of doing it this way and try to bridge that gap between them um, between administration to kind of make some progress and don't expect that it's going to happen overnight. Um, you know, even with us being a large school district and having three full-time strength coaches, you know, other school districts are starting to adopt it, but it's going to be a slow process to get, you know, full-time strength coaches everywhere um, or people designated within the campus. So I think the more that we're able to get these LTAD messages out there, um, I think it helps everybody support their cause because they could take this recording and show it to an administrator and say, Hey, like, this is what we're after. This is, these are some of the reasons that not my words, but someone else's words, why these things are important. Yeah, absolutely. And just a reminder, um, for some of the attendees in there, uh, you can put your questions in the chat. We'll make sure we get to them. There's one that kind of popped up that I'm just going to go towards right now. Um, because I thought it was relevant to this conversation. We had somebody ask, um, how do we start the conversation about rest with athletes and or their parents and saying I'm at a small school in which students go from football to volleyball to basketball to track and field to softball. Um, so little rest in between seasons. Um, 
We've had more than one female athlete struggle during a basketball game on a Monday, and then was at a club volleyball tournament all weekend. Love the multi-sport continued activity, but how do you teach to always be active while also showing a necessity for rest and a slowdown? Does anyone want to attack that? Offer some advice potentially? Yeah, so, I'll move it up if, if you don't mind. You know, that's right. an interesting question too, because, you know, and it gets back to what we were talking about earlier when you equate it to other subjects. Like, would you subject your child to that much school? Like, are you going to go to school from eight to four? Uh, and then you're going to go to algebra club from uh, seven to nine. And then the next day you're going to go to uh, math club from like, when you, when you put it in those terms, like, of course we would never do something like that. So, you know, in sports, for some reason, it, it's a different animal. Everybody thinks more is better. And the, the most that I can give you is actually the best. So I like to actually share what the research says but in a friendly way, because it's really difficult and it's really easy to make it sound like you're being condescending when you're talking to parents or coaches or even kids with what it is. So I'll find some really great uh, infographics. So look at Adam Virgil's stuff. He's got some really cool infographics that are easy to look at. And it's a, it's a quick read. And you can say, all right, here are the benefits of sleep. If you are playing basketball until 9 p.m. and then you have to come home and study until 11:30 and you have to get up for the bus at six, you're not getting your you're not actually the best performance aid that's out there. You're not taking advantage of it because you're too busy doing something. So you kind of get back to like what Missy was saying too. You know, like frame it in a way that shares with them how to get the best results for elite performance or even improved performance is just doing some of the simple things well. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. That's a good way to answer that. Um, and we'll make sure that we drop in. Mike just did there for anyone listening. Um, Mike just dropped in some of the things that Dr. Howard was referencing. Um, going back to buy-in, just the topic of buy-in again, uh, Mike Whiteman, I'm going to pass this over to you. Uh, judging from the videos, right? Uh, I'm looking at my iPhone. I'm looking at, uh, on Twitter, Instagram, right? Um, we talked about some of the dangers of that, some of the positives of that in this day and age. Um, it looks like the buy-in is there from the academy standpoint. Can you talk to us a little about your experience there and how you've been able to create that buy-in there? Yeah. So again, uh, I, I've been blessed and to use a cliche that our football coach here and for the Steelers, Mike Tomlin has used that. I, I have a couple hundred willing volunteers and I have zero hostages and in regards to the Riverhounds Academy. So I am extraordinarily fortunate with that, but they're all hyper, hyper gifted and they want to come in and they, they want to get to work. It, the the, the buy-in I think really is, is simple because even, even at a young age where it's just movement proficiency, I do like to let them have fun and everyone loves to compete. So even the most rudimentary data points, a broad jump or a simple sprint. So in terms of witnessing improvement, as soon as anyone improves at whatever KPI you use, they get, they have the drug, right? So they want more of that. So that's, that's where the buy, and then over time, that just kind of snowballs on, on itself too. And almost to kind of circle back to the, the, the last question, I just tried in regards to resting, I try to prevent or present, excuse me, data, 
cold heart because I tell the parents very, very nicely that your feelings don't care about facts and physiology, right? So I just give them simple data points. So if you rest X amount of hours after a tournament, here's their vertical jump, here are their sprint times. If you rest 72 hours, if you rest, these are the, these are what the, the actual data points look like, really simple points. And you can, the, the, the improvement, the, the difference is clear. So they start to actually, the aha light bulb moment amongst the parents is, is there. So just really, really simple things that are tangible that can be objectified are, are really helpful for that. Yeah, thank you. Um, staying, you know, we, we kind of touched on a little bit of that uh, on the question that was asked by one of our attendees, and we're going to stay on the kind of that hot topic of sports specialization and its effect on burnout and injury. So question for Dr. Young and eventually a question for the rest of the panelists as well. Uh, objectively or anecdotally, what have you seen with some of your higher caliber athletes in college and beyond um, all the way up to Olympic level as you compare those who have played one sport versus those who have played multiple sports? And this is a, obviously a super hot topic, and um, I'll, I'll want to try to bring some, um, I guess, balanced clarity here. That I think the reality is that while it's it is really kind of sexy to say or popular to say, hey, no sports specialization early. The reality is, if you don't do a little bit, especially in certain sports like say uh, tennis or maybe even to some degree soccer, you're not going to give yourself a chance for future success. Now, other sports, kind of your more typical American sports, your uh, football, your basketball, et cetera, you see more cases there where, and even like your highly physical sports, your performance-oriented physical sports like track and field, uh, cross country, Olympic weightlifting, there, you almost don't need to specialize at all early on um, if you're if you're heavily gifted. But I think we need to we need to approach this from a balanced perspective in saying that sports specialization, uh, some sports specialization, isn't necessarily uh, the root of all evil, but it needs to be balanced and it needs to be appropriate for whatever is necessary for that sport. And when I say sports specialization, I think. I, I do want to be clear that one, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm neither opposed nor, uh, you know, vehemently uh, for sports specialization. I just think it's important to recognize like, yes, every Super Bowl team has their players who played 85 sports in high school, but there's also just as many players on those teams that have, you know, been sports specialists, right? Like Tiger Woods, sports specialist from the time he was 10 years old. Uh, yes, he's battered and broken right now, but he was also achieved more success than practically everyone else. So let's approach this as an, in a balanced way that it's not a black and white thing. Uh, we just want to make sure that as we do have some sports specialization, that it is appropriate uh, for the, the current level of that athlete and that we're not skipping all of the things that... Uh, Mike and Missy and Dr. Howard talked about already where, you know, we have to have those movement competencies early. We have to have the basic uh, physical competencies early before we even start to play around with kind of quote unquote sports specialization. And I, I'll finish by saying this is that um, what most consider 
sports specialization in my mind is largely bogus, right? So uh, I don't think of sports specialization as like, hey, I'm going to bring a soccer ball or a tennis racket and make it heavier and put it in the weight room. And we can do that exact same skill in the weight room or, you know, do all our resisted uh, all our change of direction with some kind of resisted band or Vertimax or something like that. I think that's nonsense. I would look at sports specificity more from the physio physiology and the movement qualities associated with it. So what are the, the energetics? What are the biomechanics? What are the contraction types? Those kinds of things. If we look at specificity from that side of things, rather than just like, let's try to, uh, you know, mimic the actual movement task as closely as possible. That's a, that's a street that I don't want to go down. And I think it's, there's not really a lot of support for that. Uh, so really what we're, what I'd suggest is we go broad, we narrow up to the, to the, you know, contraction types, the movement types, the movement velocities, uh, you know, the energetics associated with a sport rather than just saying like, Hey, let's kick a heavy soccer ball or, some of this other nonsense you see out of, uh, you know, the, the highly sports specific crowd. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Mike Whiteman, you wrote an article, um, in the past on simply faster. And I get a recall that you said, maybe it isn't that young athletes need to necessarily play multiple sports, but rather they need to prioritize physical preparedness and solid training throughout the year. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So the game has changed clearly. So the days of, of, multi-sports athletes are waning if if nothing else so i think it's our job as a field and a profession to pivot as well and address those concerns although not optimal that's fine we can fill in the gaps with our skills so if i'm training primarily soccer athletes and i know that that is anterior dominant quad dominant a lot of hip flexor adductor type stuff. Well, then I probably should do my best and due diligence to work on posterior and, and fill in the gaps, so to speak, and do the things they're otherwise not getting to keep them healthy. And I've always used the analogy to the kids because it's even though they can't drive yet, they are aware that they have their kids or their, their parents have to take the cars into the shop for basic maintenance, tire rotations, alignments, things of that nature, just to keep the car healthy and if they're in fact the car they they need the same thing as well too so again although it's not optimal and they're not changing enough it's our job i feel then to to fix that and then figure out the most pragmatic ways to, to do so yeah yeah absolutely um missy you told me that you had about 400 athletes is that right um, I have, I'm curious and, and you may not know exactly, um, or you may, which I'm interested in is what percentage of athletes at Byron Nelson high school, you say play multiple sports. And is that something that's encouraged uh, at the high school? Um, so if we remove football from the equation, um, and we take a look past the freshman year on the girls side, we will maybe have. 10 to 15 girls that play multiple sports. And generally that's an event in track and field. Um, in, on the boys side, we'll usually have about, our basketball team is almost exclusively spe specialized. 
our soccer team, um, but for two football kids, which kick for us, which um, I don't know that that's really technically multi-sport. Um, and then we'll have maybe five to 10 baseball kids that play multiple sports. Um, and just to add on to some of the points that have been made previously on this, um, a couple things. Number one, we won a volleyball state championship uh, in 2019. And the reality is, is that if our kids were not specialized in one sport, we don't win that because it's such a skill dominant sport that they have to be training those skills all the time. Um, and so I don't think we're going to see a shift away from that back to multi-sport culture. Um, the question in the chat was great because it actually highlighted the fact that those multi-sport kids sometimes do have those same rest and recovery issues as these specialized athletes. Um, and then the final point I like to make with this is that sometimes kids are only in one sport because they're in the band or they're in theater or they're in orchestra or, you know, maybe they just don't like another sport or they're not good at it. So I think a lot of times we indict the single sport system without looking at the individual um, and the training process surrounding it. Yeah, for sure. You bring up some great points there in terms of some of the extracurriculars that are going on. Um, so I want to leave a little bit of time. I know we have a couple of questions in the chat here. Um, I'm going to have Mike Compton address some of them uh, to some of our panelists and feel free to piggyback off each other um, if you guys would like. Awesome. Thanks, Gabe. Uh, our first question comes from Joe E. Um, I'm going to direct this towards Dr. Howard. Uh, what are you doing in your community to bridge the gap between stakeholders, elementary PE, youth sport coaches, middle school clubs, high school coaches, parents, et cetera, to name a few? All right, Mike. Well, thanks for the question. Thanks, Joe, for uh, asking the question, too. Um, Joe is very involved in all this process, so it's great to hear the question. He has a lot to share as well. Um, but from my perspective, and I think this is important for all of us to be involved in our communities, um, you know, we're not an island, an island, we're not a silo, we're not in isolation. How do we put that together? Um, so in my community right now, it's pretty exciting and being at the college level. And uh, I was the director of athletics for the school district of Philadelphia for a number of years. So I have that experience as well. So I reached back out to them uh, and we're actually putting together a project where we're going to start to take a look at students' um, physical activity levels their motor skill levels, looking at what they're getting to help drive physical education instruction uh, at the elementary level. Uh, and then to integrate that across all levels, junior high school, middle school, whatever they call it, and in different, it's all different configurations in Philadelphia and also into high schools so that we can actually take it. And I think my role now in strength and conditioning and more in the athletic side is makes it a really good sell for a school district to be able to take that on and say, you know, this is something that we can do. I've had a lot of experience with them. I still know a lot of the coaches and teachers to be able to go back and put that together. And then to be able to reach out into the community. Philadelphia is unique in that the, the Department of Recreation uh, runs most of the fields. It's a landlocked city like most big cities are. So a lot of the fields where our teams practice and play are not owned by the school district. They're owned by the Department of Rec. So there's already been an articulation agreement, how that works, how that looks and how that attracts parents and families and different things in different parts of the city. You do have um, 
to be aware of different battle zones in terms of neighborhoods and who can cross boundaries from one neighborhood to another, either on foot, in a bus. There's all kinds of those crazy issues to look at, too. So it's a lot more complex than we think of in middle America. I think sometimes, well, you know, you just go to the other team, you just go out and you, you shake their hands and everything's great. It's different. It really is different. We need to factor in wherever we go. We have to look at all the societal things that are going on in that community to see what we can do to best help. But we think being able to engage in this process, I run the coaching minor at Westchester also. So I'm able to get my coaching students involved. And so they're able to come out and help. Uh, they're helping with summer camps and different things that we're doing this year. So we've really been able to recently more than uh, before, really get a handle together on being able to help lots of kids in the entire Philadelphia area from where I am. Awesome, thanks for sharing Dr. Howard. And um, your story earlier actually kind of sparked it as well as far as community, like getting those parents involved with, you know, youth practices. And we talked, we talked about long-term development this whole time. And sometimes it is lost once become, once people become parents and they're not moving as much anymore. So thanks for sharing. Uh, Missy, this question is actually directed towards you from Sam M. Uh, Coach Mitchell McBeth, are you able to keep your groups of athletes somewhat separate by experience slash abilities? If not, how do you differentiate progressions of your fundamental movements in large groups? So um, the short answer is no. I do not have any control over that. Um, I get groups that are separated by um, either one of two ways. So in some of our programs where we have smaller numbers, we have a varsity athletic period and we have a JV athletic period. Um, and so then that JV athletic, they're both going to be a mixture of ages, training age, all that stuff. Um, then we've got our larger programs that will have a JV varsity period and a freshman period. So in that scenario, I have my freshmen completely separately. I can take them through progressions on their own pace. In the other scenarios where I kind of have a mixed bag of student athletes and ages and training ages, how I differentiate that um, prior to getting technology in my hands um, is just simply by having on the whiteboard, if you're a ninth grader, this is, we use squat as an example. Ninth graders, you guys are counter movement squatting. Here's your sets and reps. You know, juniors and seniors, you guys are front squatting. Here's our percentages sophomores were on goblet squat because you guys didn't come this summer. And so I, I just have it literally written out by age group or by the number of years I've had you. Um, now that I have a software program called FIT, um, I can actually go in and create three identical programs. Um, and then I can just push those through into the individual kids. I have them grouped in the FIT app and I can just push those modifications through to their phone. Um, same thing applies to an injured kid. Um, a lot of times an injured kid will have to be back on step one of a progression because they're doing a return to play protocol. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, everyone would have software um, in the world that I used to operate in before that I would literally just, you know, have it up there or I'd walk down the line and modify kids as we went based on their um, ability level. Awesome. Thanks, Missy. Yeah, big fan of fit. Uh, great software. Uh, but just last question, uh, just kind of piggybacking off that last one, Mike Whiteman, I'd be curious to get your thoughts kind of in the same space. Um, in the academy level, do you ever move athletes up um, at that younger age because their skill set and maybe physical development um, is that ready and they are ready for that? And then I'll flip it over to Gabe to wrap up. Thank you. Yes, abs absolutely. That is the, the dirty little secret, right? So it, you have 
actual age and then you have developmental and, and actual and training age as well too. So those that are m- more precocious, absolutely. That's, that's part of the academy system. It's kind of the last bastions of meritocracy, right? So they, they earn their way up and they earn their way down. So we are constantly for those that are ready and we're very conservative about making that judgment call yes, we, we do push them up in age group and, and that really accelerates the process. And again, we're very watchful, mindful of the fact that we want to maintain certain qualities and that we're not chasing things and numbers and and things of that nature. But uh, yes, absolutely. That's just a young kid growing up. If you're playing with the older kids, you're going to either sink or swim. 100%. Uh, we just had a couple, two more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Just come through late. Um, we'll start with Dr. Young. This is from Courtney E. When working with professional athletes, do you talk to them or plan at all for life after sport or retirement? I know this is something many pros struggle with after sport. And then we'll have one more question after that. Uh, sure. Thanks for the question. Uh, before I answer it, I just want to quickly point out uh, one of our prior questions was from Joe Eisenman, who I know that uh, Dr. Howard kind of highlighted. But if, you, if you're not familiar with who he is, he's uh, a true leader in the field. So to have him as a guest on this is kind of, uh, uh, he should be probably on the panel himself. The guy uh, puts out a ton of content. So check out his Twitter feed and, and all of his other contributions. We've actually brought him on as a, as a board member for LTAD Network. Uh, but thanks again for the question. Uh, as I've as I've gotten older and moved more and more personally away from uh, being in being kind of a competitive athlete, I've actually seen full time firsthand like what's the importance of like lifelong health, wellness, fitness, etc. And it's become a, increasingly a passion of mine uh, to kind of instill this in younger younger individuals who are maybe not so clear focused of seeing what's, you know, uh, in this very short time frame of athletic performance. So, uh, you know, I'm, you know, as I'm coaching and talking about things, I'm always trying to educate to these high performance athletes about things like, you know, recovery and performance and sleep and nutrition and how this is really just, uh, you know, we're not, we're not just trying to prepare you for the next two, three years or to make the next step in terms of your competitive excellence, but how do we sustain this over a lifetime? And, you know, that comes down to like injury management, life skills. So yes, I'm always talking about this. You know, I actually had a discussion today with an NBA guy I'm training and uh, he's coming back from, from an injury that held him out this whole season. He's an all-star player. And he's, you know, I'm telling him, Hey, you know, have you tried this uh, therapeutic modality? And um, I pointed it out and he's like, well, what would that do for me? Or why would I want to do this? And I'm like, well, this is about more than your next one or two years. This is about your, how are you going to live with this body that you have for the next 50 plus years, hopefully? Um, you know, maybe you make enough money to not have to work again, but you still got to live in this body. So these are discussions where I think it's all about education. And I think uh, the cradle to grave approach is something that I get think it's really overlooked, especially in, in the US where we think of LTAD as like 
adolescence period, you know, young kid to 18 years old and that's LTAD. But really it's like, how do we create life habits? How do we create a, uh, an adult athlete? As Dr. Howard led off with, I think it's like, there's this weird switch now that up until very recently, people thought like, oh, I don't, I don't play sports or do anything with skills or do anything with power or jumping or sprinting the moment I stop competing, you know? And the moment you do that, those physical qualities and movement skills will decline. So it's like, we need to create lifelong athletes. I don't know if that's the best way of, best way of putting it, but we need to create people that could conceivably uh, have those same skills and movement capacities and physical capacities as they did when they were younger and hold on to them for as long as possible. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Young. And, and I think um, lifelong athlete goes back to Mike Whiteman's uh, initial word for long-term athletic development, sustainability. So I think everything's kind of come in full circle uh, throughout this conversation. So the last uh, question is going to be Missy from Chris B. You mentioned working with the return to play protocol. So I'm curious how you and possibly other coaches work through return to play with athlete medicine in the high school and middle school ages. Um, there's a lot of layers to this and I actually know Chris. So Chris, if you want to get on a separate call to talk through all of these things, we can, but I'm going to try to, for purposes of brevity, bullet point, a couple things. Um, number one, when I arrived at my current stop, I walked into what was a triage facility in the weight room where it was like, I had probably 10 kids running up to me with various and sundry injuries of why they can't lift and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I went to the athletic trainers and just built a relationship and created a dialogue of what can they do versus they can't do X, Y, and Z kind of things. Now, certainly contraindicated exercises, we need to know about that stuff, but creating that dialogue with the athlete of, Hey, we still have three functioning limbs. Let's work around your injury. Um, so that's piece number one. Um, a return to play protocol is a moving target and versus the college level where they're seeing the doctors very frequently at the high school level, they're seeing the doctors every two months. Okay. But in that two months, there are a lot of changes occurring. So what I've started doing is talking to my athletes about getting me in touch with their physical therapist and opening that dialogue. So I know more on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, what the focus is what changes have happened in the return to play. Um, and so I kind of navigate that through a multifaceted approach, both with personnel on campus and off campus. Yeah, thank you, Missy. And um, we included a link in there, everybody, to the relative social media pages, the Twitter profiles in there. If you go look back at some of our images, uh, you'll see some of the Instagram handles as well. Please feel free to reach out to our panelists um, as many of them are active on social media. So last question I have, this one's going to be for all of our panelists, um, and it's going to be kind of rapid fire. Uh, something fun that we like to ask a lot of the practitioners that we'll be bringing on here. What does your own training look like now? Uh, is it practice what you preach or are you training for something spe specific or experimenting? And I'm going to kick it off to Missy for a quick answer. She's been posting about her just jump mat uh, score. So Missy, do you want to start uh, with you? And then um, we'll go to Dr. Howard, Dr. Young and finish with Mike Whiteman. Thanks. Yeah, uh, I play beach volleyball. It used to be somewhat serious where I would like travel and play tournaments and that kind of stuff. Now it's just a weekend warrior type deal, but I still want to jump well, move well, and of course, um, stay available to play. 
Um, so I kind of slant my training towards being a volleyball player. Cool. Thank you. Dr. Howard. Uh, actually, I am a master's level strongman competitor. So uh, I have a contest coming up next weekend that I'm preparing for. So that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier when I said, you know, just go to the gym and I guys like, say, what kind of squat are we doing it? So, you know, uh, I've been training, I've been training since I was like 12. I've been, I love weight training my whole entire life. It's created my life for me. So uh, I always acknowledge that I keep after it. So I'm excited about Strongman. I'm actually on an SCA spe uh, Strongman special interest group and doing different things there. So yeah, I practice what I preach, but we also add in all kinds of different things. We still, you know, play games, have different contests, challenges, even while we're training. And then um, just as a quick funny story, I know we all have to get going, but it was one of the things that I gave to my um, 10 and 11 year olds. We had a small tire, like a car size tire. They did a four-way tug of war with the four, with the tire, pulling in different east, north, south, and west. They played for 10 minutes and they wouldn't let go. They just created a game on their own. So like something that's simple like that, that we just think you flip a tire. Well, no, they create some of the coolest games you'll ever see with just some compliment, uh, common implements we have around. So thank you for the opportunity today. Yeah, you got it. That's awesome. Good luck next weekend. Dr. Young? Yeah, uh, similar to Dr. Howard, I, I've actually uh, was training from a very young age uh, and really loved strength sports, have done powerlifting and weightlifting, went to collegiate nationals as a, after my track and field career finished uh, in college uh, and um, then returned to weightlifting at the national and international level and, you know, competed at a very high level, a couple medals at the national and international level. Uh, have taken a little bit of a hiatus uh, due to COVID and due to uh, some, a lot of business ventures kind of going on, but I'm very active. I make sure I do something every day, still Olympic weightlift kind of in as for fun, but even, even more so now I'm kind of doing a lot of the stuff that um, my daughter's interested in. So I find myself playing basketball a lot. I've kind of returned to basketball for the first time in uh, 20 or so years and uh, enjoy being the old man on the court who can still do stuff with the young guys. Yeah, that's great. And lastly, uh, Mike Whiteman. Grew up playing soccer my whole life, and that's a very running intensive, as everyone here is aware. So got sick of running and then wanted to get strong and went through about every lifting modality, west side splits, and then into big Olympic weightlifting kick. And then I started getting old, and I was like, whoa, I'm losing the elasticity and the speed. So now it's it's just sprinting and leaping and and, and trying to chase that fountain of youth. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, well, that's all the time we have a lot of for tonight. Thank you to everybody that joined us for the first ever edition of the KES and a huge thank you to our four awesome panelists. We're grateful for their time and willingness to share their knowledge and expertise. Uh, please, please, please give them a follow on the respective social media pages and be sure to check out their websites as they're all terrific resources for the latest on long-term athletic development. We plan to make this recording available publicly and hope you will join us in two weeks from now for our second KES panel. Thank you, everybody, and good night.